ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Dusk is settling across the outback Queensland town of Mount Isa. But just because business is winding down for the day doesn't mean it's a quiet night ahead. Local kids roam barefoot, music blares from houses, and police in an unmarked car cruise down the main road. But they aren't looking to make arrests. Instead, an officer and a youth justice worker are trying to make connections with teenagers to build trust and prevent tricky situations before they even begin. We had one a few weeks ago where uh, the young person, after we dropped him home, he let us know that uh, if we didn't pick him up that night, he was thinking about trying to steal a car. So we might not normally find out about it, but our presence in that area has prevented an offence that night. Today on Australia Wide, we'll take a look at how the Mount Isa community is tackling youth crime. I'm Alex Hyman, coming to you from Wajak Country, Perth. But firstly... Back in May here on Australia Wide, we reported on the mass closure of bank branches around regional and rural Australia. Over the course of three and a half years, it's estimated that more than 650 brick and mortar banks closed up shop. And while it's happening in communities across the country, it's being felt most acutely in small towns where often they're already dealing with the loss of many other services. Since March, the Senate committee looking into regional bank closures has travelled to regional towns across Australia to hear how the loss of banking services has affected communities. Having recently heard from the big banks, the committee has spent today in Canberra talking to key regulators and the bodies overseeing the financial services sector. A reporter, Dan Ziffer, has been following today's hearing. Dan, what was the purpose of today's hearing in Canberra? Uh, Just hearing from more uh, groups affected, essentially, you had Australia's three key banking regulators, the Australian Securities and Investment Commission, ASIC, the Australian Prudential Regulator Authority, APRA, and our competition and consumer body, the ACCC. Uh, All of those uh, putting forward their thoughts on it, but also, interestingly, the Treasury and the Reserve Bank and Australia Post themselves. Australia Post runs the Bank at Post service, uh, which is now really broad-ranging, and they got a bit of a sense of some of the challenges and opportunities there as the number of branches continues to decline. Yeah, we'll get to Australia Post in a moment. Uh, What picture was revealed today about just how many bank branches have closed in recent years? I mentioned those numbers around 650 uh, that was quoted across a three and a half year period up to uh, about mid-year this year. Uh, What did APRA have to say about that today? Uh, APRA had uh, their thoughts on just the kind of state of where we're at here. But essentially, we've had 420 go in just the past year, um, more than 2,000 in just the past six years. Um, On top of that, you're looking at the uh, real more than halving of the number of ATMs, automatic teller machines, uh, in the past six years as well. So a real shrinking of the ability of people to physically trade money, uh, particularly the more remote and regional that you get. Interestingly, uh, from APRA, one of the things that was noted and has been noted by the banks previously, most of these branches are in 
suburbs and in the cities of large, the centres of large cities. So that's where most of the numbers have been thinned out. Of course, the impact is larger the more remote you are and the fewer options that you have. There was a call today from a business lobby group for banking to be treated as an essential service. Who put that forward? Uh, so we heard from the uh, Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry, who look after big businesses, also from the Council of Small Business Organisations of Australia, who you'll know as COSBOA. Uh, we heard from Luke Akestrat, who's the CEO there, basically suggesting that, like electricity, uh, the phone network and sewage, these are essentially essential services for business. They certainly are. People don't have the ability to start a bank by themselves. Uh, he wants them designated as an essential service and essentially with responsibilities and rights as well as access to funding uh, to help support that. Here's uh, Luke Akestrat from the uh, COSBOA organisation. Look, we think absolutely uh, banking needs to be recognised as an essential service. You know, access to your own money is arguably as essential as access to electricity, sewerage. That's Luke Akestrat there from the Council of Small Business. And Dan, I understand the idea of Australia Post uh, playing a greater role in banking services. That has gained some momentum this year. That was also raised again today. Um, yeah, they certainly did. I mean, this is a service that is available at uh, post office kind of licensees around the nation. And most towns, even if they're very small, do have a post office. Um, interestingly, uh, about 95% of Australians live within about 6Ks of a post office that has these kind of banking facilities. Um, that same figure, 95%, you know, you have to go to 11 kilometres for them to be close to a bank branch. Um these services, though, are somewhat cut down. They don't do everything that banks do. And that is probably one of the criticisms of the Bank at Post uh, system, that, yes, it is broadly available, but they don't do everything that people sometimes want from banks. So what opportunities and challenges does that idea then present of having Australia Post as a potential alternative to traditional bank branch services as these bricks and mortar premises close down? Well, probably the biggest one is money, which is that a lot of postal services that provide these banking services don't really get compensated for the time that it takes and the complexity. So that's making them more reluctant to take it on. It makes it harder for it to be kind of ramped up. Um, they're also not set up as banks. You know, these are post offices. Many of them are retail stores. They don't have kind of the structures to store safely and, and transfer really large or substantial amounts of money. So there are a few barriers there, uh, but it does provide an opportunity if they perhaps are paid better for it or they can get better facilities where, for example, customers could talk about um, sensitive financial matters, something that's in many ways not able to be done in confidence over the counter at what is in reality a post office. Did you get a sense that there was enthusiasm from Australia Post to play a greater role in this space? Um, they've always certainly been enthusiastic about it as a part of their business. Um, previously, their last CEO used to uh, be second in charge at one of our largest banks. It was thought that they might take a more aggressive role. Uh, the issue, of course, comes with the kind of cost of complexity of running a bank in a small area. Um, a lot of the concerns you get are very run-of-the-mill, they're cash transfer, but a lot of them are very complex. Um, you know, one of the things that banks complain about, but I, I think they're 
fair on is that they are a highly regulated business. Now, they need to be because what they do is a complex and important and in many ways dangerous product. But with that level of regulation, um, it does make it very difficult to staff those places and to make it work financially. So it's not a solution. It's certainly a partial solution. And it happens at the same time as the percentage of digital payments rockets and people do, whilst they still like cash and still use cash, are using cash to transact a lot less. And Daniel, the RBA addressed the committee today. What did they have to say? Uh, Well, they basically talked about their role in the payment system. The RBA does a lot of stuff. We obviously think about them with interest rates. They actually do an immense amount of work uh, with regarding, obviously, our currency, which they print and uh, distribute, uh, but also the payment system. And there have been rapid and really massive changes in our payment system. If you want to now, you can give someone your mobile phone number and they can use that to essentially route money to you. You know, so there are really interesting things that have gone on in the Australian payment system, which kind of I would classify under the boring but important uh, kind of uh, part of our lives. Um, There are opportunities there for remote and regional areas. One of the sticking points, of course, is that people still do like cash. And on average, I think there's about $4,000 for every man, woman and child in Australia out there as banknotes. Much of it is stored, uh, not actually used, but it is out there. A lot of people still like cash. And where you have cash, there is bizarrely, but understandably, a cost of transacting it. And just finally, Daniel, uh, what now for this Senate committee? Oh, the most important part, a report. Uh, The Senate committee has heard from everywhere. They've been been to my hometown of Sale in uh, beautiful Gippsland. Uh, They've been around the nation. They've heard from a lot of people. Uh, They will make recommendations. There are people from different parties, political parties, on this committee. Uh, It's a really difficult problem. It's in many ways not a new problem, uh, and in some ways – Digital technology provides some but not all of the solutions for the need for banks in remote and regional areas. But this is a problem which is becoming a political problem and it's becoming a life problem for people who live in these beautiful parts of our country. We have to have a way that they can be part of the banking system and uh, do something with their money. Our reporter Daniel Ziffer has been following this Senate inquiry into regional bank closures and he's bringing us up to speed here on Australia Wide. Daniel, thanks so much for your time once again. All the best. You're listening to Australia Wide. On ABC Radio. You are on Australia Wide with me, Alex Hyman. It's wonderful to have your company. Remember, you can podcast the show or listen back to the program through the ABC Listen app. We recommend that you do so because it is a much better listening experience. Of course, you can visit the Australia Wide website as well to stream the program. Just search for ABC Australia Wide. And you can always email us. We love to hear what's happening in your part of the world. AustraliaWide.radio at abc.net.au. That's AustraliaWide.radio at abc.net.au. Let's head to northwest Queensland now for this next story where it's promising to be a busy night on the streets of Mount Isa. Kids roam barefoot and music blares from houses as dusk settles across the outback Queensland town. Police in an unmarked car cruise down the main road, but they're not looking to make arrests. Instead, an officer and a youth justice worker are trying to make connections with teenagers at risk of getting on the wrong side of the law. They hope by investing now and developing trust 
there will be a payoff in the years ahead. Julia Andre has this report. Scoping out who's on the streets. Our afternoon shifts are the busy ones. Uh, lots of kids walking around. That's Sergeant Carl Dennison. He's part of Mount Isa's new youth co-responder team, which engages with around 200 young people a week. But they aren't making arrests. So we've been running for a few months now. Um, it's a 24-7 patrols uh, of hotspot areas. Together, police and a youth justice officer try to forge connections with kids at risk of engaging in youth crime by taking the time to connect with them in a way that a general duties police officer can't do. They find out what they need and how they can help them. Yeah, we don't expect to see the short-term results from this program. It's Typically, our results should come in the three to five year mark. We're busy engaging with kids who might not be uh, stealing the cars right now, might not be our top targeted offenders that normal police might interact with. Um, So we're interacting with the the 80% below that uh, by demonstrating positive role models, uh, you know, a good relationship and good rapport with the police. It can be offering them a ride home, enrolling them in after-school activities or simply throwing a ball around. So a lot of the time here in Mount Isa you'll see the kids sort of rolling around in groups and there's usually a lead offender or a lead person in that group who's sort of known known to YJ and and the youth correspondent team. Um, So they're key, key indicators for us. Another thing, a lot of the kids are opportunistic here, so they might see something and sort of react that way. So what we try and do is get involved beforehand, drop them off home, get them off the street to sort of minimise that opportunity. That's Youth Justice Officer Dion Talmata. He helped to establish the state's first youth co-responder team in Logan in southeast Queensland. It's hoped that the expansion of the co-responder team in five new locations across the state, including here in Mount Isa, will be a circuit breaker for youth crime and help ease tensions. But on the ground, workers acknowledge that any potential solutions need to be tailored towards individual communities. So we're still sort of finding our feet Um, what works, what doesn't work and and what best fits the community here in Mount Isa. And they're already celebrating some small successes. A couple of the wins that we've had in Mount Isa is, you know, we'll find a kid walking around, we'll have a chat or we might be giving him a lift home. Um, And we had one a few weeks ago where uh, the young person, after we dropped him home, he let us know that uh, if we didn't pick him up that night, he was thinking about trying to steal a car. So, uh, you know, that's one win where we might not normally find out about it, but where our presence in that area has prevented an offence that night. Acting Sergeant Kyle Dennison of the Mount Isa Police Force, ending that story there from our reporter in northwest Queensland, Julia Andre. ABC Australia Wide. Let's head over the border now to the Northern Territory where an Aboriginal community wants to revitalise its fruit orchard. It's hoped the nearby supply of fresh produce would improve the health of residents and boost food security. Victoria Ellis has this story. We're going to go and pick all the fruits up. Come on. You want to pick one? Come Hi, my name is Lois Fraser and I'm a Bidjanjara woman. I live at Kenmore Park. 
Kenmore Park is an Anonganu community in the APY lands of South Australia, about 460 kilometres south of Alice Springs. The community is home to an orchard that was once flourishing and producing buckets full of grapes, oranges, mandarins, lemons, apricots and peaches, among other fruits. It was maintained by a retired couple from Clare in South Australia, but as the pair got older and their health declined, they moved back south and the orchard fell into disrepair. Um, at the moment, it's not in a good, uh, good condition because of lack of water, but uh, some of the local people from Alice Springs are here, being here and helping us with fixing all the irrigations uh, and bits and pieces to get up and running again. Why would you like to see this orchard get up and running again? So that we can feed the hungry kids in the APY lands and to share the fruits, share with them the anangus. The burden of disease for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people is 2.3 times that of non-Indigenous Australians. And Indigenous Australians also have a shorter life expectancy at birth. National Rural Health Alliance Chief Executive Susie Teagan said rejuvenating the orchard could improve the health of Kenmore Park residents. It's extremely important for um, the population in general, let alone Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, um, to have a healthy diet. You know, if you had more fruit and vegetables, the chronic diseases such as cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, chronic kidney disease and some cancers would be reduced because they're responsible for at least 75% of the mortality gap between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and other Australians. Ms Teagan said the exercise and a sense of achievement from maintaining the orchard could also improve the health of the community and provide residents with an opportunity to educate themselves and work. Donald Fraser, Lois's father, remembers the orchard when it was thriving. And it grow and grow and grow, and that's why the gate was open for anybody, non-Aboriginal people and Aboriginal people to come and pick what they want. Can you tell me, Donald, why it was so important for the community to have that those fresh fruit and vegetables right there? Why was it that everybody needed that? We've always wanted to live off the land because we were so far away from everywhere else. I was living in Adelaide and uh, that was a dream. For Donald, Lois and the community, the orchard means they'll always have food, even if their cars break down or they run out of money. How much is that going to be helpful for you guys? Uh, fully, because um, it'll help us um, survive with the fruits. Maybe, maybe in the long run, we, if we sell some products from here and then save some money and, and try and um, build our own little shop here in Kenmore. Susie Teagan says this is an opportunity for the Departments of Health and Agriculture to collaborate with the community and improve outcomes. It's a community grassroots approach to solving a problem which actually can be done with the community 
um, that would provide a much better health outcome. National Rural Health Alliance Chief Executive Susie Teagan, ending that report by Victoria Ellis. And you also heard from Pitanjara community leaders Lois and Donald Fraser. And if you want to find out more about this story, you can head to the ABC News website. And finally here on Australia Wide, the ABC is partnering with International Day of People with Disability to recognise the contributions and achievements of the 4.4 million Australians living with disability. At 19, Catherine Reid became a paraplegic after coming off a horse while working on a farm. Years on, Catherine and her husband run cattle and miniature goats in Tasmania. This is her story. My name's Catherine Reid. I'm from northern Tasmania. I live 22 k's from Launceston with my husband Tim and our two boys Will and Harry. Yeah, that's it. We farm miniature goats and Angus cattle. How is everyone this morning? At the age of 19 I came off a horse leaving me a paraplegic. I remember everything from when I had my accident. I went off on this horse. He was one I'd had trouble with before. I was saving my favourite horses for later in the day. I went I'll get this rotten thing out of the way and then I'll come back and I'll do the fun ones. And this rotten one, uh, I ended up with no brakes on him. So I got to the end of the track and went to pull him up from a fast gallop and I couldn't stop. I had no horse underneath me. I literally got left behind. People don't know what to do with people in wheelchairs, especially when there's horses involved and everyone's sort of a bit scared to let me do anything or try anything. And so that was where the idea of running my own stud came from. Timmy, can I grab you for a sec, please? Yep, that's all right. Can you pop her collar back on? If you can grab her. So while I kept trying to get work in the racing industry or breeding industry in Tassie, there just wasn't that kind of opportunity for me. Yeah. I've always found genetics really interesting, even in high school before I was working with animals. So to do the genetic side of what is a goat stud kind of ticked that box for me and allowed me to follow that interest. Having a wife in a wheelchair or anyone with a disability, there's different things you have to set up around the farm so that they've got accessibility and can be included in what they do. Like our biggest thing on this property to start with was making gates swing. There was, I think, three gates on the entire property that swung. And then my gate here, Tim's actually got me an airlock because they're smart enough that they... um, They'll often try and follow me out, so I've got my two gates here that I shut that one behind me before I open my other one up. The thing about being in a chair is just how much energy it takes. I'm using a third of my body to do what most people have a whole body to do these jobs. Plus I have to lift full dead weight when I do something like get onto the motorbike I have to then drag the dead weight of two-thirds of my body up it's amazing how heavy your legs are when you have absolutely no control over them one of the things I found quite difficult about being back on property is that there's all this conflicting emotional baggage that kind of comes with it there's the fact that I can't do all these things I used to be able to do and the grief that comes with that. There's the fact that intellectually I know how to move a fence. I know how to move livestock. I know how to check on animals and I know how to go and dig up thistles and all these jobs. Division of Labour on the farm 
pretty much, I would say, 90, I'm trying to be polite, 99% would be me. <laughs> um, looking after the goats and things, Catherine does most of that. I have to help out, obviously, with things like holding goats or moving their shelters, bits and pieces like that. But most of the other stuff Catherine will do. I get many comments from people, very well-meaning and well-intentioned, about how good a job I'm doing when they see me out and about. So I might be at the supermarket getting my groceries and someone will come up and tell me that I'm doing a great job or whatever. For me, I've been in a chair 15 years. That's a very basic job for me to do. And I think it comes down to this sense of internalised ableism, I suppose, is probably the term you'd use, that we just don't realise the way that we approach disability and to have a disability is often considered this horrible thing and I mean it's not something you'd choose but it's also not always necessarily as big a disaster as we think it is. Thank you. That's Catherine Reid on her farm outside Launceston and that story was from Helena Bachkowski. And International Day of People with Disability is this Sunday, the 3rd of December. You can watch the full episode of Catherine's Story on Landline via ABC iView. And that is Australia Wide for this week. Thanks so much for your company. I'm Alex Hyman. Sinead Mangan will be back again with you on Monday. Hope you can join us then for another week of Australia Wide. Have a wonderful weekend. Cheerio. ABC Listen.